welcome again to those of you who are here in the building at St Matthew's and those of you who are joining us online. And I might say a special hello to Klaus, who I understand is watching us from Germany. Mate, it's uh, a beautiful midwinter's day here in Manly. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing you again. Uh, and a welcome too to our Archbishop, the Archbishop of Sydney, Kanishka Rafal, and his wife, Kaylee, who is also here somewhere. It's lovely to have you with us today. And we're looking forward to hearing uh, from Kanishka Bruce. We'll be interviewing him shortly. And uh, Kanishka will be speaking to us from God's Word in 1 Corinthians a little later in the service. But it's wonderful to have you here, Kanishka. And we're entering now into a time of ex extended prayer, uh, in the middle of which we'll be uh, lifting our voices in praise to God from Psalm 19. But I invite you to bow your heads and uh, join me as I lead us in this prayer of preparation. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. As we come together before God, it's only right that we thank him for so many of the good things that he gives us in life, especially what he gives us through the Lord Jesus. So please join me as we pray together this prayer of thanksgiving. Gracious God, we humbly thank you for all your gifts. I think we're on different pages. Let me uh, lead us in prayer. <laughs> Gracious God, we humbly thank you for all your gifts so freely given to us, for life and health and safety, for power to work, leisure to rest, and for all that is beautiful in creation and human life. But above all, we praise you for our Saviour Jesus Christ, for his death and resurrection, for the gift of your spirit, and for the hope of sharing in your glory. Fill our hearts with all joy and peace in believing. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now I'm hoping we can say Psalm 19 together. Is that going to come up on our screens? Is it there, Nadia? Yes. Let's, uh, let's read this together. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord my God and my Redeemer. Amen. Colin's now going to come and lead us in prayer. Thanks, Colin. Good morning, church. It's my privilege to lead us in prayer. In Psalm 29, David praises the King of creation. Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. 
ascribe to the Lord glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in splendour of his holiness. Lord God, we worship you. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that we can meet freely in your name. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are not able to do so today. We lift up all those in prison or in hiding and those who have no fellowship with the wider body of believers. We pray that you will enable them to run with endurance the race you have set before them as they fix their eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We pray for our nation, for our Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, our Premier Dominic Perrottet and our Archbishop Kanishka Raphael. May their leadership be wise and compassionate in these challenging times. Please make us a church which lovingly engages with those you place around us. Give us confidence and grace to communicate the hope found in Christ. Guard us from hypocrisy and enable us to display the unity we have with you and with one another. In the light of the recent census analysis, might we mirror Jesus. Heavenly Father, in these times of distressing and disturbing events at home and around the world, we pray for strength and a sense of calm, free from fear because we know you. Teach us to lay all our burdens and concerns at your feet. Equip us to do what we can to uplift and support those in need. And we also bring before you the family of Maureen Goldstein Morris as they prepare for, their, for her funeral service on Wednesday. Bring comfort to them. We pray for the many in our church family who are taking time to rest and recharge in a midwinter break. Keep travellers safe and lift their hearts to you in thanks. In you, O Lord, we take our refuge and hope. We pray this in the name of our Saviour, Jesus. Would you join with me as we pray the words of the Lord's Prayer together? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Let me transition and say it's a great day today to welcome our Archbishop Kanishka Raphael to be amongst us. I've known Kanishka since I was at Moore College. I was just two years ahead of him and I was going on Wikipedia to have his look at his page and we're born in the same year, Kanishka, 64, so there you go. And uh, I've kept in touch in various ways. Uh, we would bump into each other and so it's delightful that he is here with us today to preach. So can I get you to welcome Kanishka as I just get him to share a bit about himself. 
Good morning. I always thought you were much older than me, Bruce. <laughs> yes, anyway, thank you. <laughs> it's the grey hair. Yes. Wisdom, it was the wisdom. Anyway, uh, we'll just keep moving on that point. Um, <laughs> now, Kanishka, I know lots about you, but many people here probably won't know a lot about you. Just tell us a bit about your story, coming to faith. Just who is Kanishka Raphael? <laughs> Well, that, the that, man behind the title of yeah, Archbishop. That's not a terribly interesting story. However, um, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, this year, in October this year, it will be 50 years since my family migrated to Australia uh, from Canada at the time. Um, so that uh, feels like quite a significant milestone. It is a significant and, milestone. Um, over, over all those years, the Lord has been very, very kind. Uh, um, my family background is Sri Lankan. My cultural heritage is Sri Lankan. Uh, my mother's family uh, were Sinhalese and Buddhist. Uh, my father's family were descended from the Europeans in Sri Lanka. There were three waves of colonization and uh, my father's family arrived in the 1700s. Um, and uh, his parents were in fact devout Christians. Uh, but my mother raised my two sisters and me um, as Buddhists. So I uh, called myself a Buddhist until, um, until I was saved by the Lord at 21 uh, when I um, read John's Gospel. And I had been studying Buddhism uh, informally uh, and practicing meditation and all those kinds of things. And uh, I had a conversation with a Christian friend who told me that being a Christian meant he'd lost control of his life to Jesus Christ, which was a rather striking way of putting it but accurate. And um, he offered me Mark's Gospel and John's Gospel to read, and I agreed to do that uh, out of our friendship more than for any other reason. But when I read John's Gospel, um, I was struck, first of all, by its historical character. Uh, the Buddhist scriptures were not written until 400 years after the life of the Buddha, so they don't have any sort of historical detail, geography or pe people or, or anything like that. It's uh, just sort of wise sayings, I suppose you might say. Uh, and so reading the Gospels, the Gospel was very different because it was so earthy and authentic and historical. And um, part of that is that the person of Jesus is a real person. <laughs> um, in Buddhist scripture, the Buddha is a voice. Uh, but in the Gospels, we meet the Lord Jesus, and he's, uh, he has friends, and he has enemies, and he has uh, emotional reactions, and he engages people in questions and, and uh, uh, provocations. And, of course, uh, there is a beautiful life of compassion and power. And so, uh, you know, this was very um, confronting and compelling uh, the Lord in his kindness brought my attention to a phrase that John uses. Jesus will do something and then John says, at this, the people were divided. And the Lord really used that and turned it around on me and said, what about you? And I realized that I was against Jesus, uh, but I couldn't work out why. So not being able to work out why I was against him, I decided I should before him. Fantastic. Praise God. Now, your dear wife is here, Kaylee. Indeed she is. Somewhere. You're married there she with is. children. There she is. Yes. 
We yep. have two adult daughters, uh, both of whom remained in Western Australia. We were in local church ministry there for about 17 years and uh, returned to Sydney in 2016, but Hannah and Lucy remained. Fair enough. Now, we just had a look at the census data and I gave a message last week responding to that in terms of Australian Christianity. Hmm. And one of the things that I noted was what you hear in the media uh, is probably more negative than what we mm. might see on the ground in mm. terms of faith in action and mm. the gospel ministry that's taken. And you would see much more than all of us because of your mm. travels across the diocese, mm. across the country. Mm. What are some stories that would encourage us today? Sure, sure. Well, um, to, to give a balance to the yeah. negativity we've heard yeah, in the media about you, everyone ticking no religion. Um, yes, indeed. Well, um, <clears throat> It is one of the privileges of uh, this office that I get to visit churches and ministries uh, across the diocese and it really is wonderful to see uh, local communities uh, of uh, Christian people growing in the knowledge and service of the Lord Jesus and holding out the word of life to those around them. Um, so uh, uh, when you say good news stories, they're always personal, aren't they? Because the good news... Uh, is a message for every person. Um, it has tremendous uh, uh, capacity to change a society or an organisation. Uh, but, but what we are fundamentally talking about is individual people made in the image of God coming to know God as, uh, coming to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Um, so I was out in uh, Western Sydney uh, and... Uh, uh, the minister was telling me that they had uh, leafleted the suburb. Just a completely ordinary type of thing that we do in local areas. Um, and a man had come to see him with this leaflet in his hand. And he said, I went down to the railway station to throw myself in front of the train. As the train approached, uh, um, the clouds parted and I, and I was dazzled by the sun. So I missed the train. I went home, completely dejected, of course, and found this leaflet. So I've come to church to talk to you. And that man has started reading the Bible with the minister. He's, in fact, learning to read by reading the Bible. Mm. Um, uh, we were at, a, we were at a, another church in the, in the northern area, and uh, um, there was a parish lunch after, after the service, and the music was provided by an Iranian couple, a husband and wife, who were playing traditional Iranian music. Uh, they had come to the church um, for no particular reason, <laughs> except that they wanted to know about Christianity. And that man has been uh, reading the Bible with the assistant minister there uh, now for several weeks. Not yet a Christian, but learning of Jesus, who they've heard about, but didn't know anything about. Um, uh, recently, I was at an inner city church there is an annual service for the survivors of abuse uh, in Sydney and uh, um, it's a very uh, quiet, um, meditative, uh, repentant and uh, um, it's called hope and healing and that's what we seek to offer to people. Uh, after the service, I spoke to two people separately or I heard of two people, one of whom had spoken to me uh, and another of whom I heard later, two people who both said, uh, I feel like I've been healed. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, that is a profound thing. It is extraordinary. Been through. It is extraordinary. Mm. Um, uh, and we praise God for it and thank God for it. Uh, and um, I had another one. Oh, I, I wanted to tell you that uh, earlier this year, uh, I ordained the pastor of the MacArthur Indigenous Church, um, Michael Duckett, who has been the pastor there for 14 years. Uh, but we ordained him this year. And I can tell you, um, there is so much joy uh, in the Aboriginal Christian community about Michael's uh, ordination. And I'm just so glad that we could encourage and recognise his ministry and encourage that community in that way. Um, because it's very rare. <laughs> We've ordained very few people uh, of uh, Aboriginal background. And he's a tremendous Christian leader uh, and community leader. So, uh, four little stories, quite different uh, in their own way, but each of them is a testimony uh, to the goodness of God and uh, the power of His Spirit at work in the lives of people through ordinary local churches. Mm. And I take it you could multiply that across the city of what you God absolutely is doing. could. Well, I mean, the one of the things pick up on it. But yeah, I mean, happening. one of the things that you could say is that every church, every church that is trying to reach out to people uh, by, uh, you know, running an online Christianity Explained course or <laughs> dropping leaflets in mailboxes or uh, um, having uh, uh, meals uh, provided, or every church that is reaching out to people is is doing that, is reaching people. Mm. Um, is connecting with people who don't know who God is or how much he loves them or what he has done for them in the Lord Jesus. Uh, and so, you know, we could be tempted into thinking, oh, well, there's no point, you know. Mm. That is completely untrue. Every single church that is seeking to connect with people is connecting with people mm. and having the opportunity uh, to share with them something of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's enough of a reason to keep going, isn't it? It is. I'm going to stop you there. Um, it's delightful to listen to you. But we're going to have Kanishka come back and preach. We're going to stand and sing. It's the offertory song. So for our regular members, it's an opportunity to give towards the ministry here. So we will, um, for those who have their offertory, just put it in the bag when it comes around. But let's stand and rejoice in God's goodness.
The reading from the Old Testament this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 29, verses 13 to 24, which you'll find on page 707 of your church Bibles. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go into great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. So what his form say to the one who formed it? You did not make me. Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? In a very short time, will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field and the fertile fields seem like a forest? In that day the deaf will hear the words of the scroll and out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Once more the humble will rejoice in the Lord. The needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. The ruthless will vanish. The mockers will disappear. And all who have an eye for evil will be cut down. Those who with a word make someone out to be guilty, who ensnare the defender in court and with false testimony deprive the innocent of justice. Therefore, this is what the Lord who redeemed Abraham says to the descendants of Jacob. No longer will Jacob be ashamed. No longer will their faces grow pale. When they see among them their children, the work of my hands, they will keep my name holy. They will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who are wayward in spirit will gain understanding. Those who complain will accept instruction. The reading from the New Testament is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31, which you'll find on page 1142 of your church Bibles. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are Christ in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is the word of God. Uh, well, good morning again. Um, uh, it's such a delight to be with you, uh, and I'm very grateful to uh, grateful for your welcome and grateful to Bruce for the invitation uh, to be with you. Um, why don't we pray together? Uh, gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for every good gift that you give to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of this day and the opportunity it brings us to meet together in this way. And we pray, Father, that in your mercy you would bring your word to our hearts in the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. That we might see your Son, love him and serve him gladly until he comes. Amen. Uh, well, the message of uh, this passage from 1 Corinthians is that the church, its people and its ministry are a demonstration of God's power. The church that seems so weak, the church that is confused by heresy and weakened by division and compromised by ungodliness and its ministry of gospel preaching that seems uh, so out of touch, so unimpressive, so much yawning, the church and the preaching of the cross are a demonstration of God's power. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Church of God in Corinth. It's 23 or 24 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and in this multicultural, multi-religious, sexually promiscuous commercial centre... Corinth, not Sydney. <laughs> the grace of God has brought a church into being. And the challenge the church is facing is that it lives with two opposite realities. It has received grace and been enriched in every way. Verse 4 of chapter 1 says. But it is divided and embroiled in quarrelling. Uh, verse 11 of chapter 1 says. The cause of the division is celebrity in a city obsessed with celebrity. Corinth, not Sydney. And Paul says to a church that is making celebrities of its leaders, the cross of Christ does away with that kind of thinking. The cross looks like weakness and foolishness in this world, but it is God's power and God's wisdom. Wisdom to reveal God. Power to save people from hell. Power to transform people. The cross of Christ does all that, but in the eyes of the world, it is weak and foolish. And not only that, but God's people, the church, look weak and foolish. And not only that, God's servants, the very people they want to make into celebrities, God's servants look weak and foolish as they bring a weak and foolish-sounding message. To this church, the apostle says, you are the sign of God's wisdom and power. How can this be? 
he tells them four things. The message of the cross creates the church. The church is God's own people. The church is God's surprising people. The church is God's confident people. So let's think about each of those. Firstly, the message of the cross creates the church. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. God has made himself known in the world but not in an intellectually pleasing philosophical discourse, not in a crisp mathematical formulation. He's made himself known in a particular event in history. And because it takes place in history, it comes clothed in the dirt and sweat and tears of history. Christ crucified. To his own countrymen, Jesus' crucifixion was a blasphemy. The scriptures themselves said that anyone hung on a tree was cursed by God. I recently had lunch with an eminent Jewish uh, uh, lawyer and he, Kanishka, he said to me, the Messiah cannot be crucified. The non-Jews of Corinth and the ancient world, the Greeks, they prided themselves on wisdom and philosophy and learning. They didn't like the preaching of Christ crucified any more than the Jewish people. To say that his death was a cure for our sin was an affront to those confident of their own morality and impressed by their own wisdom. And I need hardly say that contemporary sceptics are scandalised by the cross. The cross says we are sinners who need saving. Human pride does not like that. The message of the cross is that God took flesh and lived among us and then laid down his life on the cross for us, for our sins, in our place. Jesus' death on the cross was no footnote to history, no tragic ending of a life too beautiful for this world. It was the self-sacrifice of God, bearing in himself the judgment of God that we deserved so that we might be freed from hell, so that we might be cleansed of our sin so that we might be welcomed as forgiven sinners and adopted children. There's no human wisdom that can work that out. And when Paul preached this message in Corinth, some believed. For God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. So we must have the cross. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. And the message of the cross is indispensable for disciple making. We live in a challenging environment for making disciples, to state the obvious. Our culture is suspicious of revelation. We don't believe in truth. We only trust what we experience. 
If people are interested in the spirit, it is private, not something I do in community. It is inner, not something expressed in the public sphere. It is an encounter with the divine self, not with God. It's about being happy with who I am, not being transformed. We must engage with all of that. We must find a way of speaking that connects with our culture. But we won't make disciples without the message of the cross. We might grow our church. We might build community. We might do good. We might win friends. But unless we proclaim Christ crucified with its condemnation of sin and demand of a repentance, with its humiliating exposure of human pretension and self-serving and the balm of forgiveness and the promise of transformation, unless we proclaim Christ crucified, we will not make disciples. We must have the cross in all its foolish offensiveness and its unique power to save. Christ crucified, foolishness to Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross creates the church. Secondly, the church is God's own people. Verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Verse 27, but God chose, but God chose. Verse 28, God chose. Verse 30, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Three times in four verses, Paul draws attention to the fact that the church of Jesus in Corinth has come into existence as the plan and purpose of God. He called them into relationship with himself through the gospel that was preached and which they believed. He chose them to be his people. It's because of God that they are in Christ Jesus. Because of God that they've received Jesus as Lord and Saviour. God did it. Now, of course, in the Gospels and the Scriptures, there are many places where we are called on to repent, to turn to Christ, to trust in the Lord. The Bible is full of the call to people to make their choice for the Lord. Both are true. But here, the emphasis is on the fact that God chose the Corinthians first. Now, why? Why does Paul emphasise God calling on the Corinthian Christians? The answer is that uh, there's quarrelling in the church. Um, They're taking pride in the people that God used to bring the message to them, and in their pride in their Christian leaders, they are dividing from one another. But in reality, it was God who chose them to be his. The messengers were just the instruments by which he gathered them to himself. So their division from each other is foolish and their pride is misplaced. Paul says to them, the church of Jesus was chosen by God. Verse 30, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Verse 31, therefore don't boast in your leaders, boast in the Lord. 
Now, there are at least a couple of consequences of the fact that, ch- that the church is the people whom God has made his own. Firstly, those whom God calls, he keeps. He gave his son to save you. He will not let you go. The sins and struggles and rebellion and foolishness of the Corinthian church is mind-boggling in its breadth and depth. But Paul never gives in to the idea that they aren't going to make it. Chapter 1, verse 8, he will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God who has called you into fellowship with his son is faithful. God keeps his own. And a second consequence of this is that we owe our life in Christ to God. In God's kindness, he uses all kinds of people to point us to Jesus, to bring us the message of the cross. Our parents, pastors, Sunday school teachers, members of our church, friends, colleagues. Every Christian will have a story of how God brought the message of the cross into your life through the prayers and words and example and friendship of others. And we give heartfelt thanks for them. But we never become followers of them, do we? We never become their disciples. We become sons and daughters of the living God, sisters and brothers of the Lord Jesus. And we give our thanks and praise, our body, soul and strength, our hearts and heads and hands to God and for his kingdom. The church is God's own people. Next, the church is God's surprising people. Paul points the Corinthians to themselves as an example of the foolish wisdom of God that is revealed in the cross. Verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Paul says to the Corinthians, who were you? When God called you into his kingdom, what were you like? Were you impressive? Were you rich? Were you the people who exercised clout in this city? And the answer is no. Not many of them were the people whom the world thought of as great ones. Of course, the fact that that not many of them were great ones does not mean that not any of them were great. Some of them certainly appear to have been of the patron class. There were some, but there were not many. Because it is hard for the wealthy, the powerful, and the influential to say, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. The people in the world who have everything the world prizes and values find it hard to acknowledge that they are naked and guilty and needy before the holiness and majesty of God. But some do, in God's mercy, 
some do. And God's preference for the unimpressive, choosing the foolish to shame the wise and choosing the weak to shame the strong, God's preference for the unimpressive comes as a slap in the face for human pretension in at least a couple of ways. Firstly, nobody forces God's hand. God has made it plain to the whole world that the things that the world counts as significant in evaluating the worth of people, God is not impressed by at all. He doesn't stand in awe of wealth. He doesn't bow before human knowledge and wisdom. He doesn't marvel or tremble at family dynasties. No one will appear before God and say, don't you know who you are talking to? Nobody forces God's hand. And second, by choosing the things that are not, God demonstrates that his love is free and gracious. He saves because he loves. He saves because he loves freely and graciously and generously. He saves humans not because of our impressiveness, but despite our unimpressiveness. Not because of our impressiveness, but because of his impressiveness. He saves not because of what we bring, but in spite of the fact that nothing we bring can impress God since everything we have we've received from him. He saves by his grace out of his love. And he delights to pour out his grace, especially on the helpless and the unimpressive, because their salvation shows what is true for everyone who is saved. We have nothing to commend us. Now look around you. These are the people God loves. There are more of them out there, by the way. But it's a bit of a surprise, isn't it? And a challenge. These are the people God loves. Do you? Can we? Are we growing in eagerness to meet together? Does it cause us pain when we're not able to see one another? How we learnt how that was true. Are you willing to share your life in Christ with these people? We ought to ask God to help us to love the people whom he loves and to be willing to receive their love. That's a vision for church, isn't it? And that would only happen by God's power, wouldn't it? The power of the cross, the great leveller, the great home and hope of God's people. The message of the cross creates the church. The church is God's own people. The church is God's surprising people. And lastly and briefly, the church is God's confident people. Verse 30. It is because of him 
that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In our culture, no less than in the ancient culture of Corinth, people are given to various forms of self-promotion and self-exaltation, as crass as the selfie and the forged CV and as acceptable as the car we drive or what we put on our business card. But in the congregation of the people whom God has called, chosen to be his, gathered at his cross, these people have just one boast. Jesus Christ, our Lord. No one may boast before the Lord, but if anyone boasts, let them boast in the Lord. And here's what they are to boast in. Jesus has become for them wisdom from God, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Paul uses three uh, uh, big words, drawing on three different spheres of community life the law court, the temple, and the marketplace. The law court declared right with God, righteousness. The temple washed clean for God's service, holiness. The market set free from slavery to sin and death by the cross of Jesus. Jesus Christ, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. He bore my punishment he washed me clean. He set me free. In him we have been enriched in every way. In him we do not lack any spiritual gift. He will keep us strong to the end. The song of the disciple who has been called by the cross of Christ, not a song of self-glorification in knowledge or wisdom or speech or gifts, Christ, our Lord, worthy to be praised, the one who was slain, who reigns forever and ever. He bore my punishment. He washed me clean. He set me free. One Lord, one Saviour, one hope, one goal, one guardian, one truth, one confidence, one song, one boast. The Lamb who was slain, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We're going to sing together. Would you please stand?
and uh, Kaylee with us today, uh, not least because morning tea today features baked goodies. So Kanishka and Kaylee, we'd love to have you back sometime uh, soon because we don't often get baked goodies. So that's at morning tea out there. Uh, so if you're a guest, we'd love you to come and join us. Um, but before we close, uh, I'll just let you know that Kanishka will be at the, the, um, the door at the back for those of you who need to leave straight away and then he'll join us at morning tea after a little while. But um, let's, as we prepare to go out into the world to serve the Lord, uh, hear these words of encouragement from Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.